Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, I'm Dan Jurgen, and I want to welcome you to Sierra Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. This conversation today is crucially important and it's timely. And it's different from the normal conversations we have about the oil market, uh, energy supply, uh, the electricity mix, and how that's changing. We're talking about race relations, diversity, inclusion, and specifically the energy industry's role in fostering a stronger culture of equity in American society. These are core values, but they've been shaken by the events of 2020, beginning with the death of George Floyd. Uh, earlier this year, which sparked massive protests across the country. These were calls to action, calls for change, for greater equity and inclusion. This conversation will focus on how the energy industry in particular, and two companies, have been responding and what they are already doing. The oil industry, the electric power industry, overall the energy industry has a tremendous role to play in this movement and this change and in many different ways. And so I'm very pleased to be able to engage on this topic with two leaders who are at the very forefront on these issues and these issues of change. Joni Davis is a Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Duke Energy, a position she's held since 2018. She's also Chief of Staff to Duke Energy CEO, Lynn Good. Lee Jordan is the Chief Diversity Officer at Chevron, position he's also held since 2018. Lee is also the author of a book called From Shoeshine to Star Wars about his father. And uh, recently, Business Insider uh, selected him as one of the 100 people who matter in 2020, along with the founder of Zoom. So uh, congratulations to both of you on what you're doing. And I want to welcome you and thank you very much for joining us today. I'm very glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So, so let me begin. Uh, it's noteworthy that both of you began your new positions in 2018. And I think it would be very important to hear how your jobs have changed and perspectives have changed since then, particularly with the events since 2020. How, what's, what's, what's different? Joni, do you want to begin? I'm happy to, Dan. Thank you so much for having um, us here today. This is a very important conversation. I'm just delighted to be a part of it. So you're right. I have been in this role since late 2018, and most of my time with Duke Energy, 30 years actually, has been spent on the customer-facing side of the business. Um, fortunately, over that time, I've had the benefit of moving to a number of functional areas, getting to know the employees and the great leaders of the company. And it's just really when I think about what led me here, um, I think about just the understanding of my, our company culture over time and also experiencing firsthand the diversity of our employee base. So when you put those two things together, it really just made sense. And it was a, a very exciting opportunity for me to be able to lead diversity and equity and inclusion at Duke Energy. But... Second part of your question. Yeah, so since 2018, how's it changed? Okay. 
Well, let's change since 2018 as we focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion at Duke Energy for many years now. Um, but when I came into the role, we jump-started several initiatives to really give us a keen focus on it. I'll say that 2020 really catalyzed those efforts after George Floyd and the race equity movement became the top of mind for so many of our employees, of course, and within our communities. So I really believe that 2020 ushered in the opportunity to accelerate and to really sustain diversity, equity, inclusion, like never before. Well, we'll come back then and talk about some of the things you've done. Let me pose the same questions to, to Lee. And I guess really it's a two-part question. One is how the job has changed since 2018. And two, how you came to the job. Yeah, thanks, Dan. And I appreciate the invitation as well. Looking forward to a great conversation and learning a lot from, from Joni. Um, a lot of Joni. I really wasn't in the HR space before. I couldn't spell HR before two years ago. Um, I was in the business uh, development and commercial space. I, um, as you know, I graduated from West Point. I was in the military for five years um, and then got in the energy business um, uh, and had the opportunity to, to live and work in Thailand and Indonesia, um, most recently as, as uh, vice president of our Indonesia um, commercial um, uh, business there. Uh, but right before this job, I was in an organizational capability role which gave me access to some data that I didn't, I wasn't privy to before. And uh, to be honest with you, I was a bit disappointed because what it showed me is that, uh, particularly for the African American community, um, we weren't really in the pipeline for, for leadership uh, as much as I had expected us to be. Um, now, the good news was once I dug into it more, I found out there was a lot more going on um, at Chevron than, than I was aware of before. Um, and as, as Joni has said, uh, we really leaned into the DNI for, for a long, long time. I like to say we were we were uh, focusing on diversity and inclusion before diversity and inclusion was cool. One of the things I like to think about and share is in the late 90s, we um, were the first oil and gas company to provide uh, benefits to same-sex couples, um, which was very, very new at that time. It was uh, rare for people to even come out, much less have those benefits. So. So we've been doing it for a long time, and as Joni said, um, this year, uh, really, the conversation changed after George Floyd's death. Um, I think there was a raised awareness, and we've been able to uh, initiate a number of new programs we'll get into as we, as we talk further um, uh, during this segment. So for both of you, has it become more intense since George Floyd and the demonstrations? Absolutely. Intense in a good way, I'll say. Yeah way that is really um, putting a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in a very personal way for employees and also for our company. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah as well, uh, much more intense. We've had, uh, we've, we've really increased the, the craziest conversations we've had. Um, we've had uh, in-depth conversations with our executive leadership yeah. and opened their eyes to things we weren't aware of before. So, uh, is it, can you generalize as how your companies have processed uh, the events of 2020? Well, you know, to begin, and this was really interesting and, and frankly something I'm proud of. We were, uh, I think, still the only oil and gas company to use the term Black Lives Matter. And that was important to us because we recognized the true intent, the true intent of that, of that, uh, that term. Um, and so we became public in our support of what was happening uh, in, in the black community. In addition, um, a number of our executives, starting with the chairman, were very, very public about how it personally affected them um, and, and posted comments both on our, on our website and both in, in, in social media. 
and, and that, that really kind of set the tone for our organization to, to have more vulnerable conversations about what was going on, um, which, which I think built a foundation uh, for sustainable conversations in the future. It's changed a lot. So I will, I'll be honest with you, 2020 has been a very emotionally, emotional rather, thought-provoking, exhausting, stressful, but yet a very defining year. Um, most of us, I think, have looked in the mirror personally and organizationally to see what we're made of and who we are and helping to define us. Um, and it also, from our perspective of how we process it, it really personalized for us what diversity, equity, and inclusion mean at Duke Energy. At the start of the um, race equity movement and George Floyd's murder, our CEO came out immediately and spoke to our values and the importance of diversity and equity and inclusion as a part of who we are as a company. And several of our leaders also did the same thing. Very similarly to what Lee's describing in terms of courageous conversations, we launched into our Pathways to Inclusion conversation series. And I can speak more about that as we get deeper into the conversation. But that was an opportunity for us to really um, get to the heart at what diversity means at Duke Energy, what inclusion means at Duke Energy, and what is our path forward from that. But in addition, in terms of how we process, process it, of course, we, like so many other companies, um, directed uh, many of our foundation grants to our communities that were are, are still trying to build a blueprint for how they go forward. And we dedicated about $2 million of, of foundation dollars to social justice and race equity um, nonprofits around across our seven state jurisdiction for the first time we actually had employees um, some of our advocates for african-american employees and our dni council leads to be a part of naming those nonprofits that were, were uh, the beneficiaries of those grants so there was a lot happening within duke energy and to go back to the word intense dan that's it it's been intense in a good way over the course of both of you um you, you johnny you use the word what what the intensity in terms of what it means what does it mean for both of you to be in these absolutely critical jobs at this critical juncture, personally, Joni? For me personally, it has been, and I'll be honest, it's exhausting, it's a labor of love, but it has been very meaningful. I really see the fruit of how we can make sustainable and impactful change as a result of this, leveraging this, this momentum that's been built. So um, it's been wonderful, but yet it has been exhausting. It has been, you know, we, we talk about many of the conversation series that we've had, and we'll speak again more to that, but also just, just recalibrating our strategies to be sure that we are serving the needs of our employees and our leaders in our communities um, at this juncture. Um, so it is, it's, it's been good, but it has been, it's been a lot. And I right. think a lot for most people over the course of 2020. Right. And Lee, tell what is. Yeah. I'll share a personal story with you, Dan. Um, so uh, about two weeks after George Floyd's death, I was having a conversation with, uh, with one of my, uh, my mentor, my, my mentees, uh, a young man, African-American young man, and we started the conversation with, uh, hey, how you doing, Lee? And I told him the typical, I'm fine. And I said, how are you doing, Io? His name's Io. And um, he said, Lee, I'm scared. Um, I'm scared for myself. I'm scared for my, my two young boys. Uh, I'm scared for my wife. Um, I, I'm not sure how to take all of this. And, and that was really uh, the catalyst for 
for me than beginning to sit down and, and share more broadly with our organization what was happening in the black community. And I wrote some articles that, that went out to all 70,000 of our employees and contractors that, that really kind of started the conversation. Um, and as we got further along, you know, to, to Joni's point, it was very exhausting. I mean, we became the epicenter for for all the conversation really around this, whether, uh, and there were, there were groups of people that thought we weren't talking about it enough. And there were groups of people that, w- that thought we were talking about it too much. And, and, and being where we are in the roles that we are, we had to kind of manage all of that. And I think one of the, some of the most striking things to me were hearing the stories. I knew my own stories, and I think um, all African Americans, in fact, people of color or anyone in an underrepresented group has their stories to tell, but you're really only aware of your own. Um, and we keep a lot of those to ourselves, but this brought all of them out. And so hearing the stories of my colleagues um, and their reactions and things they had faced both outside uh, of work and, and in the office um, were, were very impactful, not just to me, but to those that hadn't heard them. And that was the good thing. Those that hadn't been subjected to those things became aware that they occur on a regular basis. And, and although that was difficult, uh, once we began to move through that threshold, we could have the conversations that we needed to have. Well, I think um, you both have talked about conversations. So, Lee, let's finish out, continue on just how you structured the conversations, reactions and so forth, and, and how you use stories. And then Joni will turn to your pathways to conversations because of the parallels and what you've each learned from them. So, Lee, why don't you take that first? Sure. I think you know, one of the things we talked about briefly we met before Dan was um, was how we talk about privilege, um, and that's a that's a that's a trigger comment. That privilege has become a four level. Yes. It's difficult to have a conversation around that, and so I kind of developed a way to talk about that that I think can help remove some of that defensiveness and allow people to have a conversation about it and understand why it's important. There's three parts to it. Um, the, the first is what it isn't. The second is what it is. And the third is why it even matters to talk about it. When I talk about what it isn't, so, so when I talk about um, privilege, and, and typically we talk about white privilege, it doesn't mean that, uh, that you were born, if you're, if you're white, we're, if we're talking about a person who has white privilege, it doesn't mean that you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Um, it doesn't mean you, you didn't earn what you have. Um, it doesn't mean that you didn't have to overcome obstacles to get to where you are. It just means of those obstacles, none of them were... Uh, based on the color of your skin. So that's that's what it isn't. And when I talk about what it is, I like to actually talk about my own privilege because everyone has privilege. Everyone has some level of privilege. And so I talk about mine, and, and the way I describe it is I'm a, uh, I'm a straight, um, uh, black, uh, able-bodied man. Each of those things brings me privilege that I can blissfully go through life uh, and not even think about or worry about. An example of that is uh, being a straight man, I could always drop my kids off at school. We were talking about our kids earlier. I could drop my kids off at school. And I never had to be concerned about them being bullied because they had two moms or two dads. Um, as, a, um, as an able-bodied person, um, I, could, I could approach uh, any, any kind of a building and, and, and not be concerned about access or my, my workspace, not be concerned about those things. Um, as a uh, as a man, I'm given the benefit of the doubt around things that that women uh, may not be, and um, and as a black person, while we're in the, the state of COVID now, I've got I've got friends um, with Asian ancestry who have been uh, uh, 
verbally abused and some uh, we've read about have been physically abused simply because they're Asian. As a black person, I can just go through life and not even worry about those things. So I think about those privileges and talk about those privileges and, 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 and now why they're important because we, we, we tend to have a conversation about privilege and not talk about why it's important to know that. It's important to understand your privileges so that you can use those, identify others' headwinds and advocate for those and help remove those so everyone can And do you diffuse the stories through the company? You know, as, as we share more about ourselves and share that vulnerability, um, then those stories allow us to, to understand uh, how we have commonalities between each other and break down those walls. Once we get to understand each other, then we can, then we can step into those more, more difficult and challenging Right. So, Joni, you have, uh, at Duke, have had 450 uh, Pathways to Inclusion conversations. Tell us about that and how it's worked and what the impact and how you, how you organize them. So um, you're right. We've had actually more than 450. And um, the way that we chose to this was to give employees an opportunity to just have honest and open conversations in a safe place. So establish these pathways to inclusion conversations enterprise-wide. That's why there have been so, so many of them. We um, equipped our leaders to help facilitate. Some cases we brought in outside facilitators, but just for employees to have the opportunity to process their feelings, to talk about um, how they feel, and then and some wanted to talk, some just simply wanted to listen. Uh, but it was such a wonderful opportunity for our um, entire team to build awareness, to look at some of those ways to personalize things very similarly, to get a better understanding. And as Lee's talking about stories, there were so many personal events that employees spoke to that really struck so deep at the heart of us as one Duke Energy and one employee team of things that they never even understood about people. I'll give you a couple of different examples. It just so happened our CEO, Lynn Good, was a part of one of the conversations where um, a young lady was talking about her husband was a runner. And I, you know, it was on a, 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 um, a team call, so I could see Lynn going, okay, my husband's a runner. But she spoke about how her husband, as much as he runs in his neighborhood, stopped. 12 times over the course of his neighborhood just trying to run. And that was something that Lynn has brought up several times within uh, conversations and open forums that she really personalized that. She goes, my husband runs on a, on a frequent basis. That's never happened to us. So there was a building of awareness of things that um, people really didn't even understand. And another example is one of our employees, um, I'll just give you some of the quotes because I think they were just so incredibly moving, said this conversation uh, was the first time she'd ever removed her mask from um, removed her mask at work. And you may say, well, what does that mean? What she was basically trying to say is she's never really exposed her inner feelings at work. We've never had these kind of open, honest conversations at work before. So this is really a first time for us to build this kind of muscle. But she said she'd never really revealed herself to her teammates and um, her colleagues this way. She felt safe enough to really talk about her life, really talk about what um, her, her world is like when she walks outside of, of the halls of Duke Energy or, or disconnects from Teams Call. And those are the kinds of things that really helped um, our employees to identify with their teammates and talk about, so what does 
question really mean here? How do we take these kinds of conversations in this muscle and this safe space to build ourselves to be a bigger and better team? So um, that was how we structured ours. And that's why it was so many enterprise wide and they took off like wildfire. And our employees now are just, you know, hungering for more. Right. Did it come, did, in both sets of conversations, it come up about the challenges parents have about talking to their kids about, and maybe that I think is very sensitive but a very important topic to talk about. It did. It did. It came up in, in numerous conversations and it was an interesting um, couple moments oftentimes of self-discovery of, you know, some folks and, you know, I've never thought that I, I've, I've never had that conversation with my children. I've had that conversation with my children and so many others have and it's just, huh, Joni, why would you have to have that conversation with your children? Well, oftentimes it's because that's the world that, that we live in. So Joni, that came up quite a bit. Joni, can you say what that conversation with your children is that the other people Absolutely. didn't understand? Absolutely. I have two daughters. Um, one is 25, the other one's 27. And when they first got their driver's license, it was, you know, my husband and I were looking at each other going, okay, let's, let's have this conversation. Let's be sure that they know what to do in the event that they were stopped. And that's not to say that, you know, they're going to have a bad scenario. We just don't, we don't know. In most cases they would not, but for them to understand what they need to do, don't overreact, you know, keep your hands on the wheel, make sure that um, you're being respectful, but at the same time, you know, um, get out the information that um, the police officer needs from you. And it was interesting that um, my daughter shared with me, she was driving my uh, my father's car, her car was in the shop. My father has a Mercedes and we live in a small town outside of Charlotte. And she came home one day and she said, you know, mom, I was stopped and I don't know why I was stopped. And the police officer came up to her and said, well, I wouldn't imagine you'd be in a car like that. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, okay. I said, well, you know, how did it, how did it go? She said, I remembered everything you told me. I, you know, was respectful, but yet answered the questions, provided what I needed to provide. She said, but mom, it was really scary because I didn't know anything I was doing. So, you know, it's those kinds of conversations that I think are important for us to have. Uh, I imagine your, your white colleagues were quite shocked by that. that they never had to have those conversations with their children. Is the talk? Uh, you referring to the talk that um, that all black families have when their their kids begin to drive. Um, I didn't speak to you before. My son, when he was twenty five, was in Los Angeles uh, driving in a in a white neighborhood. Uh, it was late at night. He was working as a bartender and uh, and got pulled over uh, at gunpoint uh, by police um, and asked what he was doing in that neighborhood. And he said he was lost. He's trying to find his way home. Um, but I think, and that's what I was referring to earlier, we all have stories like that. Um, and it's, it's good to be able to share those and make people aware of those things. Let me also mention to you, I want to be sure that, that we're clear because so many of the folks who were in Duke Energy were in the conversations have spouses who are, are, are military and police and so forth. So we had balanced conversations because um, this was not about police bashing in any way, shape or form. It's just realities. And so many of the folks who are part of those conversations is, you know, my wife or my husband, or my brother is a police officer and they have accountability around their badge and we honor that. So I just wanted to be clear sure. that um, the conversations we had were balanced. It's just a reality of some of the 
um, necessary things that we have to do oftentimes because of the, the color. Joni, just so people can learn from what you've been doing and do, your conversations, um, are they groups of 10 people? Are they groups of 100 people? Uh, how do you, how do you just mechanically, how do you run them? Because I think this kind of discussion that you both are describing is really uh, incredibly important, but how do you do it? We, we pretty much, for the most part, started out with, with smaller groups, um, about 20 people or less, because oftentimes you really get the, um, the value of a conversation when it's not so large that people feel lost in the conversation. There were some, I think, that, that got up toward 30 or 40, but for the most part, we generally like to keep them at 20 or less. Right. If I could add, Dan, there's actually a structure that we've begun to use. Uh, something that some of the Tony going, um, yeah, organization catalyst, which um, which looks at the development of women in the workforce. They have a MARC program, Men Advocating Real Change, and the structure of that program is to break people into dialogue teams of 10 to 12 and have discussions around gender. We've leveraged that now into a broader program called Elevate, which has discussions around. Um, uh, issues beyond gender, but the same kind of a structure. Our MARC program itself now uh, has roughly 3,000 people in it in 16 countries, and we have these conversations monthly on a regular basis and dive into these, uh, these topics. Uh, the, you uh, mentioned earlier data, and that was one of the things that brought you into this. And Joni, when we were talking before this, you mentioned data. Uh, tell us about the importance of data. It's very important, uh, Dan. So, and, and one of the clarifications I want to make around, around data, a lot of times what you'll see is you'll see data um, that has two categories, uh, women and minority, minorities. In 2018, we began disaggregating, disaggregating minority data and breaking it down in the U.S. by um, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Black Americans. Because what we found is that, is that there may be one of those groups that isn't doing as well and you can bury that if you, if you just talk about uh, minorities. So we actually became the first oil and gas company to start disaggregating that data publicly about two years ago. And that's really been able to drive different conversations than we've had in the past. So now if you look at our corporate responsibility report, um, you'll see five years of data um, separated by ethnicity, separated by gender, and also separated by um, uh, professional, um, mid-level managers, senior level, senior level managers, and executives. So you can see that and you can develop, you can see how the trends are going there. Um, and, and that allows us to focus on areas where we're having a challenge. Tell me how do you data? Totally, totally agree from the perspective of um, disaggregating the data so that you can really see where, um, where there may be some shortfalls. Very similar to what Lee is describing in our sustainability report. Uh, for several years, we have disaggregated um, underneath minorities or people of color, different races and ethnicities. Uh, beginning in, in next year, we will also show that same data stratified at different leadership levels. So I think um, it's as this journey is continuing and actually as a catalyst for 2020, I think you'll start to see so many, many other companies that are beginning to be uh, to provide much more transparency around their data at different levels, but also be able to chronicle their journey. And, you know, you have to be careful, especially also in some of these sustainability reports is you don't just over-index on the representation side, but also on the inclusion side and showing what does our data tell us in terms of whether employees within the company feel included and valued 
and welcome and feel like we're having a great experience. So um, we are, are not only just providing uh, data relative to representation, but also talking about our inclusion journey and our equity journey is a big part of that. If I could add one more thing to that, uh, Dan, actually this year we actually started including Caucasians as a category, which you never see. It's, it's typically a default. It's everything else. But we included that to send drive home the point that diversity is about everyone. And I think that was a good ad for us. I think a lot of times Caucasians will left out of the conversation or feel like uh, the conversation's about fixing uh, the majority and it's, and it's not about that at all. So um, that's been a, a nice idea. Well, let me be, I want to come to the really big issues of uh, recruitment and retention in a moment, but just first, um, you have a chance to see, compare the energy industry to other industries. How do you think your industries are doing? I'll, I'll start with that. Um, when I can look at you know the um, electric and, and gas industries, say compared to say retail industries, um, our uh, diversity data does not seem to to um, be as robust. I know we have work to do. We we absolutely understand that. We have um, set a workforce representation target at Duke Energy at twenty five percent female. 20% people of color, and I know that may sound so small. Um, at the end of last year, we were about 1% away from that target. Um, and when we talk about recruiting and retention, that will, will play into that. But um, so many of our roles are worker roles, craft roles, plan operators. There's there That's not a hugely small population. Um, so we know we've got work to do there from a gender perspective and also from a, a racial and ethnically um, diverse perspective as well. Um, but, you know, we understand what this journey is. We've got commitment from our leadership. And as we talk about recruitment and as we talk about retention, I'll share with you some strategies that we're deploying in order to really be able to, to move that goal Clearly, it's been a challenge in the uh, in the energy business. I think to attract people from underrepresented groups, and and that is a uh, main focus of ours. Um, and our goal is to uh, reflect what the markets provide um, in terms of of uh, what's coming out of the university and what's available in the experience market. And we we do we do track those and set aspirational goals around where we want to be. We do it by function uh, because we understand that that each function is going to be a little bit different. And where we're challenged the most, of course, is um, is in the area of, uh, of engineering and um, uh, analytics, all those areas, and so right. STEM, STEM subjects. Right. So we've we've invested a significant amount of time and effort in those cases. So I want to—that's what I want to go into retention and recruitment. But just be, one other thing is before we do that, the engagement of both your companies on these issues in in their communities. Yes, absolutely. So our Duke Energy Foundation, of course, has been um, incredibly involved in trying to help our communities build blueprints for them to be better. We have uh, various areas of focus from the foundation, um, but we provide grant dollars in order to, for communities to really be able, and nonprofits to really be able to kind of um, advance their programs of work. And as, you know, as a provider of these communities, we're part of these communities. We live there, work so um, the Duke Energy Foundation, from a grant perspective, is, is one of the ways that we get involved. But we also um, ask our employees to, you know, have boots on the ground. Um, we have a global service month, and that just not extends within that month. That's just a focused time for employees to volunteer within nonprofits and be a part of our communities, whether it be on boards, whether it be with nonprofits, and also different ways in order for us to really um, help our communities to, to be more inclusive right. and to 
in the urine communities all over the world as well as the United States. Yeah, yeah, and, and similar similar programs. Um, your point, we're in 55 uh, countries all over the world, and we have specific targets around using what we call local content. So we want um, local providers to be able to be suppliers to Chevron. Um, and then and then here in, in the U.S., we put our money where our mouth is. We, we actually have a um, very prolific matching program. Uh, so up to 10, we invest, uh, donate up to $10 million a year uh, per employee, and Chevron will match that. And so you can decide where that where Chevron is sending its dollars. We also match um, or provide funds if um, uh, if it's been out. We track the hours that we spend uh, donating, volunteering time, and Chevron will invest in that as well. Um, number of scholarship programs that, that could be a whole other segment on the things that we do. But just to give you one quick example, we have a refinery in Richmond, California, and everyone that graduates from uh, high school in that Richmond area um, is uh, is. Uh, eligible for a scholarship from, from Chevron. And we've literally uh, provided millions of dollars to uh, graduates uh, in that Richmond area uh, from, from Chevron over the years. So it's, it's so important that we reinvest in, in the community to do that regularly. Right. And of course, that becomes more urgent now after the impact of COVID and what it's done to small businesses and, and the communities where you, in particular, where you work. Well, let's go to the thing that's central for both of you, which is retention and recruitment. And maybe let's take retention first. Um, how are you addressing it? Or what are you, what are you discovering or finding as, in these, as you go on this journey? I'll start. We did a study last year and went back for the past five years of um, employees who are female employees, um, employees of color. Um, why did they leave the company? And oftentimes we were... Um, um, had to pull exit interview data in order to really be able to to understand those those uh, reasons why they left the company uh, voluntarily. But we also cross referenced that with employee engagement survey data in order to really be able to understand how did they feel about the company culture while they were here. And then looking at their exit interview and and some of the things that we found is just you know a different type of opportunity. And um, I don't think that's unusual. We have actually pretty good retention within um, Duke Energy of, of females and um, people of, of, of color. But um, we that did give us an opportunity to really look at are there some cultural things that we need to address. They're cognizant of as we build our program of work um, that would allow us to much focus on honing in on those things that would allow um, employees to feel like, you know, if they want to stay with the company. We did find that there are some areas where employees feel like, do I really have a future in terms of advancing diverse leaders? So that is a huge area of focus for us to be sure that employees um, feel like they've got a career path that either have it within um, their capabilities of understanding what is my developmental plan, what a career plan, what are career paths for myself to be able to outline those in order to be able to, like, I feel like I can have a career here um, and um, actually make a good living and have right. a good time. Right. Lee? Yeah, it's obviously an area of focus uh, for us. We actually do very, very well with retention. And I think the average uh, turnover rate in the U.S. is about 15% of organizations. At Chevron, the voluntary um, exit rate is about 4%. Um, so we, we really do a good job of retaining people. And I think a lot of that is due to the uh, employee networks that we've had for about 20 years. You know, Tony's talked about how do we create that, that culture 
Um, in fact, we just celebrated this year our 20th anniversary of employee networks, which are we have 12 of them, and I'll, I won't name them all because I'll probably forget one along the way. But but the typical ones you would think about: um, Black Employee Network, Asian, um, Hispanic, uh, Enabled for People with Disabilities, uh, Pride, um, uh, Asian. I mean, some Asian, uh, Filipino, Pulamore, which is actually for Indigenous people in Australia. And so we've got a variety of those where you just try to make sure that first of all it helps with recruiting because as uh, potential interns come in, we connect them with a lot of those, those young employees and those, in those uh, employee network programs and, um, and give them a home and a community to feel, uh, to feel safe in. Um, and so our, it helps our recruiting. We actually recruit, I think, more than our, our fair share based on what the market will bear, and we retain very well. Our challenge has been more about developing and seeing representation at the top of the organization. All of us kind of suffer from that, and so that's a real focus area for us going so I guess we'd say retention, recruitment, and promotion are all uh, part of it. Well, let's talk though about talk more about recruitment and just where things stand. And Joni, uh, tell us in terms of diversity about recruiting and how you, how Duke is responding in terms of its outreach. I would love to do that. We're very excited about some of the um, plans that we altered in 2019. Um, as I moved into the role um, and we began to look at our how we go about recruiting, we made a much more intentional focus around going places where we would um, be able to speak to diverse talent, whether it be historically black colleges and universities, whether the Society of, of um, Women Engineers, National Association of Black Engineers, and being very active in those spaces in order to tell diverse talent about our roles. So that's a big part of it is, is around awareness of the roles that we have. The electric and gas industry don't get a fit off. It's a little stodgy for many of our, our talent that's coming out of colleges and universities, you know, they're looking at, you know, Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon, and here I am, Duke Energy, great place to work. It just feels a little more stodgy than those places, but we were very intentional about trying to reach um, bright, wonderful, diverse candidates where they, um, where they exist. So we put strategies in place to do that. And then we, um, made them a part of our talent community such that as, as jobs came available, we would continue to text and reach out to them to say, hey, we have roles available and we'd love for you to apply. So um, we put some very intentional strategies in place in order to really be able to diversify our candidate pool, which diversifies our interview slates, which is intended to diversify then our, our um, hiring. The, um Sure. Yeah. And, and, and of course, you have the issue. I mean, Duke has it, and you have it in terms of STEM education. Yes. Yeah. As I mentioned before, we're obviously deep in STEM education. We've, we've uh, uh, invested some $400 million in 2013 in STEM education. But I want to talk a bit about specifically what we're doing uh, in the black community since we kind of started with that. We've done some things that are really pretty cool this year. I want to talk about. Uh, you know, we've been uh, involved in many associations that, uh, that Joni mentioned for some time. We actually recruited our first um, HBCU, historically black college and university graduate, in 1979. Um, and, and actually, he's still with us. He's been with us for 41 years now. Uh, and we recruit regularly from HBCUs. But this year, we did something very different. And we actually uh, invited the, the president from the uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, Fund, um, who oversees a network of HBCU presidents in to meet with our, uh, our C-suite. And so we sat down with them for an hour and a half and talked to them about what they need. We didn't just 
cost money over the fence because when we, we did toss more money over the fence but along with that we wanted to understand um how do we have how can we become a better partner what is it that you need how can we expand this pipeline and get more involved in your programs uh from the ground up when people come in as freshmen how do we begin to uh document them into uh, the corporate world and understand how to make that transition whether they're coming to work for us or someone else uh so we're really really proud about that program we're actually putting somebody in the on the TMCF uh, board uh, very soon as well. So, um, can I also add to that as well? Because it is such a, a um, I think, an important part of, of how we recruit from historical black colleges and universities. Very similarly, Duke signed the HBCU challenge that Representative Alma Adams um, um, authored. Uh, I think it's been about two years ago now. And it is more than just recruiting, but it's also how you build a sustainable relationship with those universities. And in the, the Carolinas, um, there are more historically black colleges and universities, I think, than, than most places within the United States. So um, that is a huge focus for us, not just to also recruit and um, as we hire students from HBCUs to be sure they have mentors, that are part of either their their university or making sure that they are able to transition into the, the workforce very, very well, but to deepen those relationships for, you know, are we able to be mentors at the university? Can we often help um, speak and provide curriculum instruction? So deepening those relationships is a big part of, um, of our agenda as well. Do you feel, both feel that on recruitment things are going at a, an appropriate pace, and you're seeing the change that uh, that needs to happen. I think they could always. It is for us. Yeah, it, it could be better, better, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with Joni. I think it is, but it can always improve. Um, you know, always looking to do things better. I, I want to make sure. Also, we know we're not just focusing on HBCUs. Um, we look at uh, we're called PWIs, predominantly white institutions. Um, we develop programs with universities like the University of Illinois. Um, with uh, Texas A&M and Mississippi State um, to provide a, a feeder pipeline from uh, junior colleges and, and sponsor um, uh, people from underrepresented uh, groups uh, into, into that pipeline. And so they have a, a stepping stone, if you will, from those junior colleges into those larger um, universities. And from there, from there then we provide um, uh, interviews for, and for internships. And so there are lots of different pipelines we're looking at to make sure we continue to step up our our our, uh, our well i think it's very appropriate to end this discussion as we have talking about the future and the next generation and change i want to thank both you joni and lee for a fantastic conversation this has been very impactful and meaningful what you've talked about uh you're both in very key roles right at the forefront and as you say things are changing but there's more change to happen you both uh, will be uh, very important in making it happen and your organization certainly will be as well. And so on behalf of uh, everybody uh, watching on your Week Conversation, I want to thank you indeed for joining us for this very timely and significant discussion. Thanks again for tuning in to another Week Conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at searweek.com.